Daniel chapter 9 for the lesson here, Unshakable, as we go through the book of Daniel, an exciting book. It's been amazing every week, just digging into this incredible uh, book that God has put together through the prophet Daniel. This morning, uh, I want to remind you of something, maybe if you were raised in church, you'll remember this. If you weren't raised in church, you'll probably still recognize this. And that is a little song that we sing to the toddlers and still sing it. It's been singing it all these years. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. And uh, I remember still hearing that so clearly as my mom would sing that song to me and then with me. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. No matter how old we get, there will never be two greater things that we could do daily to stay close to the Lord, other than read your Bible and pray every day. That's why it's such a good song. <laughs> it's why it's stuck, because not only is it sweet for the little kids to know, but it's true. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you will grow, grow, grow. And it was the same in Daniel's day. It's never changed. Today we're going to see a man named Daniel, a guy now in his 80s, as we were just talking about, such, uh, such wonderful people who for all their life have served the Lord. Daniel, a, a Bible reader, we're going to see that in this chapter. A man of prayer, we're going to see that in this chapter. And there is one other thing that I want to bring out that I think was very important to Daniel that was key in his prayer life, and that was confession of sin. Daniel has been an example to us from the very time we were introduced to him in Daniel chapter 1 as a, as a young man. And all the way through, now in this chapter, we're going to see a little deeper into his relationship with God. What made him tick? What, what was that between him and God that was so special? And it's going to challenge us again in our relationship with the Lord. And, and ask the question, where are we are? Uh, where are we at this morning with Jesus? Now what amazes me about Daniel, as we're going to about to see this, is his posture of humility before the Lord. He lives with this posture, and when he comes before the Lord, there is the posture of his heart, uh, as, as well as, as we see a few chapters earlier, the posture of his knees as well. He would kneel in prayer three times every day. And all, after all these years of following God, he doesn't act like he's got it all together. He, he doesn't strut into God's throne room with arrogance he doesn't approach God like God owes him something. God, I've been a good guy, man. You, 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 I, I, sh I, I go to church all the time. I, mean, I should get some points for all these things I've been doing. He doesn't even approach God in the slightest like that. Daniel comes to God as a guilty person who is keenly aware of his sin at, at over 80 years old. And he simply pleads the mercy of God, as we're going to see. Uh, as I was thinking about this lesson, a person that came to mind was good old Herb Voppel. For those of you that knew him, a member here at the church, a couple times there toward the end, a man in his 90s. He, uh, he would talk to me about the temptations he was having <laughs> of his own sin. And I thought, Herb, you've been serving the Lord all these years. How could you still be dealing with sin? There's just no way. And um, he was, though. And he, he felt it in his own heart. And he knew he needed to go to the Lord with that. No matter how old or young we are, we need to be aware of our sin and plead the mercy of God. Today is a lesson to us on how to pray. How to pray. 
and how to confess our sin before God. And this is something you're not going to hear very very much in Christ, many Christian circles. There's not much talk about confessing our sin before the Lord, at least not as much as there should be. So let's look at it. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. The chapter, as we're going to go through, at, at the very end, we're going to end with probably one of the most famous prophetic passages in the entire Old Testament about the end times. And so we're going to see that at the end of this chapter. But first, let's dig into the relationship that Daniel had with God. Verse, verse 1. In the, year, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. So real quick, let's, put our, uh, let's get our minds in place of where this takes place and when this takes place. This chapter is taking place before the lion's den, before that whole event. Uh, it's the first year of the reign of Darius. It's the first year in this new regime. It's 538 BC. Babylon has just been defeated. And Darius is, is the Medo-Persian king who's in charge of the Babylon area. So think about it. Daniel has now outlived the entire Babylonian empire. He came when Babylon was rising in strength. And he, as we come toward the end here, he was there when it ended. God's man is still there. He's been serving the Lord all his life in this wicked environment, this wicked place like Babylon. Among the elites in the government, that's where Daniel was. He, he's a man who lived in the world, but not of the world. And we're about to see one of the reasons he remained so strong. Verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years, whereof... The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. All right, let me, let me set this up. Daniel was, was strong in his faith, partly because he was a Bible reader. We're seeing right now that he, Daniel was reading the Bible. He was reading the book of Jeremiah. And by reading the book of Jeremiah, uh, he realized something. Now, real quick, the prophet Jeremiah uh, lived one generation uh, before Daniel. Actually, their lives overlapped a little bit. Jeremiah had been able to stay in Jerusalem uh, even during the captivity. Daniel's taken off in the captivity to Babylon, but Jeremiah stays back uh, with a few people. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed, but a few people were allowed to stay, and Jeremiah was one of them. <clears throat> Jeremiah writes what God has given him, and sends a piece off of it and sends some of it off into Babylon to help and encourage the Jewish people who were in Babylon. Daniel has a copy. And what he saw in this copy as he was reading the prophet Jeremiah was that the desolation of Jerusalem, this whole captivity time, was only supposed to last 70 years. And let's look at this real quick. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 1. This is certainly part of what Daniel would have been reading here. Now, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem unto the residue of the elders, which were carried away captives, and to the priests, and to the prophets, and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. So he, he said, I'm sending this off to you. Let's, we're going to skip now down. He's, he talks about several things. Now we're, let's look at verse 10. This is what Daniel was referring to. For thus saith the Lord, Jeremiah says, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you 
in causing you to return to this place. That is, return to Jerusalem. Verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Verse 12, Then, then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and ye shall seek me and find me, when, she, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, verse 14, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. So Daniel is reading this. He's in the middle of Babylon, and he begins to read what Jeremiah the prophet has said, and he starts to get excited because he was taken captive in 605 B.C., and it's now 538 B.C., If you're quick at math, he realizes it's been 67 years. 67 years. Jeremiah says it's going to be 70 years. That means there are only three years left until God's promised uh, to bring them back. If this is a true word from the Lord, if God's word is true, and Daniel certainly believed it was, then this captivity is almost over. And what an exciting moment that must have been for Daniel when he was putting the pieces together. And by reading the Bible, by reading God's word, he was reminded that things don't happen by chance. The captivity of the Jews from from Jerusalem to Babylon wasn't a surprise. No, God was not surprised by it. God had allowed this whole thing and he would soon end it. And think about this, everybody. God preserved a book. He preserved it so that, to make sure that Daniel could have a copy and that Daniel could read it and then Daniel could stand on those words as the foundation for him in this unpredictable world that he lived in in Babylon. And the word, it's exact same for us today. God has preserved the word of God. For you and me, he's given us a copy. We have it in our own hands and it is the unshakable foundation in our world that is so unpredictable. It's the thing we stand on. And it's the same thing Daniel was standing on. And, and so Daniel is encouraged by it and he reads it and it drives his prayers now. We're about to see his prayer. It drives him to prayer. The word of God should drive our prayers too. If you're thinking you want to know what to pray for, you need to know something you ought to pray for, then read the Bible. Read the Bible and then pray it back to God. That's what Daniel is going to do. And in this case, here's the deal. Daniel knew that it was... Sin. It was sin that caused the people to be captive in Babylon. It was sin that brought all this pain on Israel. And he needed to acknowledge that before the Lord. For his people and for himself. And I want us to see how different this prayer is from the kind of praying that we often hear. Verse 3. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. When is the last time you've done something like this? Prayer, supplication, or entreaty, fasting. You know, fasting was never commanded by God, but it was something that should be done uh, when there was a great need. Sackcloth and ashes, which are ashes, which would represent just an inner shame, an inner sense of shame before the Lord. Daniel took sin very seriously. That's what we're seeing here. 
Although, you know, we don't fast in sackcloth and ashes every day, and that's not certainly what God is asking us to do, but when we read this prayer of confession that we're about to look at, I think we see, again, the posture of the heart of Daniel. When he, and the posture of the heart that we should have when we come before the Lord. Honestly, I will just say this. I often sense that we can get so callous and, and just so uh, it's flippant with the things of God that we often come to God in such pride. There's a lot of pride in Christian circles and in my own heart. As I was reading this this week, man, I was struck. When we were just in a moment, we're going to read through this confession that Daniel gives. And you, when you see the way that he talks to God, I just realize, God, sometimes I just am so flippant before you. I do not see your holiness in light of my sin and where I really am. And when we read this, it helps me come before the Lord in, in a sincere confession of my own sin. You know, confession of our sin to God is an earmark of Christianity. There are no secular groups that confess their sin. The Lions Club, they don't confess sins. The politicians, they don't get together and confess their sins. I'm sure that you don't confess your sins before you start your business meeting wherever you work. You know, you have a meeting. I'm sure that let's, let's all confess first before God and get, then get to work. You don't, we don't hear that. Nobody does that. It's a distinctive of following Christ that we honestly and genuinely, sincerely lay it all out before the Lord. And let him cleanse us. We bring it out. We bring, lay our heart and fillet ourselves before God. Say, God, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, if we stop confessing our sin, then we stop being who we really are as Christians. You know, there's an incredible testimony that I've heard. I've mentioned it before. There's a former lesbian activist. Her name was Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Amazing testimony, but she was adamant against the things of God, spoke against it in colleges. She taught in college and universities. She even taught uh, queer studies in, in college. So here she is, and she, wants to, she's, uh, she hates Christianity, and she, she's going to do research against Christianity. As part of her research, she wants to interview a pastor. And she happened to know a pastor because he lived, he was a neighbor of hers. And so he, she, he was going to be her test subject. And so she went into his home and began to interview him. He invited her for dinner, he and his wife. He said, why don't you come for dinner? And they, he, she sat with dinner uh, with them. And she said, that happened several times. And pretty soon, once a week, I was there at their house every week having dinner with them. She said, one of the, the first time we sat and had dinner, we prayed before dinner. Of course, I was not praying, she said, but he prayed. And as he was praying, she said he confessed his sin as he was praying. Lord, I'm so sorry for what we've done. I've, you know, we don't deserve your blessings, and, but thank you. And she said that struck me uh, so incredibly that he would confess his sin before God. There's just something about confessing our sin. And we're going to see that here. Now, one more thing. It's interesting to me that God had Daniel write down this prayer. We have this prayer because he wrote it down. And why would God have Daniel write out his prayer of confession? That is because it, so that it would teach every generation to come how to pray. How God, this is an example for us 
on how to come before the Lord. So let's let this passage improve our prayer life, okay? Verse 4, And I prayed unto the Lord my God, and made my confession, and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love Him, and to them that keep His commandments. So notice real quick, he starts out addressing the great God and how good this God is. Again, when we start our prayers, we ought to take a moment and think about who we're addressing. Let's take a second. Let's think about this God that we're talking to. Don't just rush into our requests. Don't even just rush into our confession. Let's pull back and let's start by uh, addressing this great God. Jesus, when he started the model prayer, he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He addressed our Father who's in heaven. Our hearts need to be reminded who we're talking to as we begin. Daniel said the great and dreadful God. It just means the one and only God of might and reverence. Dreadful would mean reverence. So then Daniel launches into one of the most emotional and honest confessions we'll ever see in the Bible. Verse 5. We have sinned, he said. We have sinned. And we have committed iniquity. And we have done wickedly. And have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Verse 6, Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. So he just puts it out there plainly. God has not done anything wrong. God has not done anything wrong. We have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. We have rebelled. We have departed from your perfect commandments. We didn't listen to the prophets when they came and preached to us. We have done that. You know, sometimes the way Christians talk, it almost sounds like they're saying that God's commands are not good or that they're too strict or that somehow God's commands are out of touch. That is not how Daniel approaches God. We have sinned. We have broken your commands. His obvious point here is there is not one thing wrong with God's precepts. There's not one thing wrong with God. We have broken those things. In other words, we are wrong. God is right. Always. It's easy to make excuses for our sin. Easy. Even in prayer. Even in prayer. Think about this. Lord, I know. I know that I did this. But you know my situation, Lord. And you know my personality and And you know those are the things about me. and That's not how Daniel came. How it should look is, Lord, I made a sinful choice because of my own desires. Would you please forgive me? I have sinned. I have done wickedly. I have committed iniquity. That is what I have done. And I lay it all out there, God. Some of the things that my wife and I talk about sometimes that some of the Christian songs we hear sometimes, not all of them by any stretch, but some. Some of those Christian songs sound like that God is just always so happy with me and how good I'm doing and how great everything is, how special I am and how I sin, but God still, he's just totally enamored with me. And it's like so, so human focused. And I'm sure, listen, I'm sure that the, most of these songwriters are sincere people. But, but where are the songs like that we're seeing right here? I've sinned. I've committed iniquity. I've, I've broken all your commands. Where are those songs? This is more than just saying, I've sinned, Lord, and moving on. 
As someone has said, it's giving a first name to my sin. It's being specific. Not only, Lord, have we disobeyed you, but we have not even listened to the prophets when they came to tell us. And you sent them to warn us. Amazing. This is an amazing passage here. But I'm going to just read through the rest of the confession now. I'm just going to kind of just read through it. Please follow along with me. It's a national confession, but it's also a personal confession. The national side has more to do with Israel breaking the covenant with God. But we also see a pattern here for our own confession of sin. And by the way, there's an obvious theme that's going to emerge in here. And that is that God is in the right and we're in the wrong. <laughs> and we need to keep that in mind. Verse 7. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces, which just means shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel that are near and that are far off, through all the countries whither thou hast driven them because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing that they may not obey thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. And he hath confirmed his words, which he spake against us and against our judges that judged us by bringing upon us a great evil for under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us. Yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. Therefore, the Lord uh, hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works, which he doeth. For we obeyed not his voice. And now, O Lord our God, thou hast brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has gotten thee renown as at this day. We have sinned and we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now, therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Remember and, and notice that there is not one excuse for sin in that entire thing. Not even one. Daniel very clearly acknowledges that God has been right to send the judgment that he has sent on this disobedient people. So why would God then be willing to give mercy to Israel? Why would, why would he even uh, choose to do that? 
Is it because the people are lovable? No. Is it because there's some goodness in them? No. That's not what Daniel appeals to in the slightest. The only appeal Daniel makes to God is because of his, his own reputation. God, will you please have mercy on us simply because of your name? For thine own sake, hearken and do, defer not for thine own sake. Oh my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Daniel is teaching us that, that God, Jehovah God's reputation should be, the, should be the concern, the driving concern of our prayers. One preacher said it this way. Our petitions should be sprinkled with the incense of pleading his honor. What honor it will bring you, Lord, if that son of mine is converted. What praise will come to Christ if this marriage is renewed. What credit to Jesus' name if that saint, that saint can walk through this hard trouble, growing stronger and sweeter in faith. Why do we appeal to why do we ask God for mercy? For His name's sake, for His honor, for His glory, that He would be known. It's not because we're something special. It's because His name is on the line. And like Daniel, that should be our great concern, our, the reputation of Christ. Well, here's the exciting thing. Before Daniel, and I love this part, before Daniel could say amen, an answer was on the way. An answer was on the way for this prayer. Verse 20. And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of God. Notice, by the way, Daniel said my sin. There is no recorded sin of Daniel. But Daniel knew that he was a sinner. He knew where he had sinned. My sin and the sin of my people. This wasn't just a national confession. It was a personal confession too. Verse 21. Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation or sacrifice. I love this. God sent Gabriel in the form of a man, looking like a man, literally to come flying in with an answer to Daniel's prayer. One Bible teacher cleverly said that this proves that answers to prayers take three minutes to get from heaven to earth because it takes three minutes to read Daniel's prayer in Hebrew. <laughs> it was already there. Gabriel, boom. Whatever the case, it's exciting to see how prayers here on earth are ringing loud, loud and clear in heaven. God heard everything that Daniel said. Prayer is not a vain exercise. When we approach God and when we come before Him, He hears it. One more interesting note here. There's, there's this fascinating time stamp on this verse. He said, at the time of the evening sacrifice, it had been close to 70 years since there was an evening sacrifice. They hadn't been doing evening sacrifices at the temple for all those years. Why did Daniel say this? Why did Daniel tell time this way? Because Daniel still functioned on Jerusalem time. Jerusalem standard time. After all these years, he was, in, he was in Babylon, but Babylon wasn't in him. He still had his mind in the right place. Another indication of Daniel's heart. So Gabriel speaks to Daniel. Verse 22. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am come forth to give thee skill and understanding. 
Gabriel was going to give him the understanding that he needed to understand how this captivity thing was going to end and what was next on God's calendar for Israel. Verse 23, at the beginning of thy supplications, Gabriel continues here, at the beginning of thy supplications, thy prayers, the commandment came forth and I come to show you or to show thee for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Gabriel says, the moment you started praying, God commanded me to come. The moment you opened your mouth, God said, Gabriel, get down there. Why? Because you're greatly beloved, Daniel. You are greatly beloved. God wanted to stop uh, and pause for a second before he launched into this prophecy to encourage Daniel personally. You're greatly beloved, Daniel. Yes, God's busy running the whole world (laughs) and the events of the future, but he also cares about people. Every single person. He cares about you this morning. God will never turn away a humble and contrite heart. A humble heart that comes to him in confession. And he'll never turn that away, ever. Well, here's the prophetic message Gabriel gives. And it's one of the most important and discussed prophecies in the entire Bible. There's a plethora of teaching out there on these next few verses. If you want a deeper dive into this, then find some conservative Bible scholars and go for it. We're just going to get a bird's eye view here. But here's what Gabriel was commanded to report to Daniel. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, that is Israel, and upon thy holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy or the most holy place there. Is what they're referring to. So 70 weeks to accomplish six things. I think I have a slide here for you. Oh, let me, let me explain the 70 weeks. There's 70 weeks to accomplish those six things in that verse. Now, the literal interpretation of 70 weeks is actually 70 sevens. The phrase in Hebrew here, 70 weeks, is not a, it's not a time measurement. It just means 70 sevens. It could be 70 sevens of anything. 70 times 7. But in context here, it's obviously speaking of time. You have, so you have to determine as you read that from the context, if this is meeting 70 days, 70 weeks, 70 months, 70 years, the only viable explanation for this text is that it means 77, 77s of years, meaning 490 years. It's 77 of years, and one week of years equals seven years. So what he's saying, by saying a week, it'd be seven. So one week of years is seven years. Are you with me? <laughs> 70 weeks. I'm not even sure if I'm with myself right now. <laughs> 70 weeks equals 490 years. All right, we're going to get into some math a little bit, so hang in there. 70 weeks, 490 years to do six things. Here they are. Number one, finish the transgression which is basically meaning Israel is finally turning to the Lord. Number two, making an end of sins. And that is probably referring to a new redeemed world someday, where the end of sins. Number three, make reconciliation for iniquity, it says in that verse, which means, obviously, it points to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. Number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That's Christ's second coming, I believe. Verse five, sealing up the vision and prophecies. Meaning having all the prophecies fulfilled. 
and then to anoint the most holy or the most holy place is what it's referring to. And that's anointing of the future temple in the millennium. So those six things, Gabriel says, Daniel, 470 weeks or 490 years for all these six things to take place. Then Gabriel divides those 70 weeks in three chunks. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Now, because of how that's phrased, let me just clarify it. He gives the starting point at, uh, of this 70 weeks. So seven weeks uh, from the going forth of the commandment to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. That is 40, uh, 49 years. That's the first one Gabriel talks about. The going forth of the, covenant, or the commandment, scholars tell us that probably the most likely fulfillment of that was the commandment by the Persian king Artaxerxes to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem in 445 B.C. That's in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah finished the wall seven years later, seven, seven years later, meaning 49 years later. So that's the first chunk. That's exactly what he prophesied. The next chunk is 62 weeks from the rebuilding uh, of that, all of, the, of Jerusalem, to the time that the Messiah would come. That's 434 years, or 62 weeks, as it says there. So if you put all that together, the next bullet here, 69 weeks from the commandment uh, to rebuild Jerusalem to the actual uh, coming of Messiah. If you take the 445 B.C. number that... The commandment came to rebuild Jerusalem by Artaxerxes. From that moment, and if you fast forward 483 years, they, they date that right at the moment that Jesus was on the earth and he was coming down into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry of Christ. This is an amazing prophecy. that We celebrate that on Palm Sunday. There's even some hint in the New Testament as to why that day when Jesus came into, the, into Jerusalem on that donkey, why that was such an important moment. Verse 26, now, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the, of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with the flood unto the end of the war desolations are determined. So he's saying after those 483 years happen, till the Messiah comes, after that, some things are going to begin to happen. One of them is that the Messiah is going to be cut off. That sure seems like it's referring to the fact that Jesus would die for sins. He's going to be cut off, but not for himself. He's dying for others. People of the prince come, will come and destroy the city. That is um, the destruction of the city and the sanctuary that's believed to happen, uh, that, that happened in A.D. 70. In Jerusalem, where they destroyed Jerusalem. And the last part of the verse is speaking about the extensive amount of destruction that took place in Jerusalem. All of that takes place after those 69 weeks. So how many weeks do we have left? There's 69 and there's 70 altogether. There's only one week left. One week or seven years left. When will that take place? Well, we don't know when. There's a gap of time now in this prophecy. 
which is not an unusual thing in biblical prophecy, actually. And the reason we know that the final week hasn't happened yet is because those, the events of, those, of that week have not taken place yet. Those six things that we listed, he has not ended sins yet. The, the, the temple has not been anointed. Uh, Jesus has not set up his kingdom yet. It has not happened yet. Some refer to this time gap that we're waiting for this last week to happen as the great parentheses. God was focused on Israel, and he has a, another great focus on Israel in the end times, as the book of Revelation very clearly lays out. But there's a gap of time. Some call this the, gen, the age of the Gentiles or the church age. There's this parentheses in here where God, it's the mystery that Paul talks about in the New Testament. Whatever the case, believe me, we will know when this final week starts. There would be no mystery about that, that you'll know. Because in verse 27, look at this. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. In the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. He's, he's talking about this prince that will come. And this is the Antichrist that will come. And he will confirm a covenant. And then you'll know that, that that last week is starting. Once he confirms a covenant with Israel, he promises, Israel, we're going to have peace and safety. I'll make sure I keep you, you, you safe. And then right in the middle of those seven years, he'll break the covenant. And, and he'll cause the sacrifices of the, of the temple to cease. And then he will defile the temple. Like Antiochus did when he offered a pig in the, on the altar there in Jerusalem. The Antichrist will do something similar but even worse. He'll set up some kind of image and force people to bow to it. Jesus calls this the abomination of desolation. Verse 20, uh, Matthew 24, real quick as we end here. Je- here's what Jesus said. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Verse 16. Then let them which be in Judea Flee into the mountains. This is going to be a frightening time of persecution for Israel. And he says, when you see that abomination come, you see in place that image. If you're still alive or you're alive during the tribulation and you're seeing this happen, you better flee to the mountains. It's about to get very, 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 very bad for the Jews and for anybody who's a believer. But remember, this all takes place. Uh, during what the Revelation calls the Great Tribulation, this is after the rapture of the saints. When, if you're alive and uh, right as Jesus raptures the church, you'll be out of here. You will not face the Great Tribulation. But if you are, if you become a believer during that tribulation, you will face it. So, knowing all this is to come, what do we do now? Well, let's just do what Daniel did. Daniel had all these prophecies, and we know one thing he did: he prayed three times a day. He even got put in the lion's den for doing that. Day after day, year after year, he just kept kneeling in prayer, confessing sin, reading the Word, staying encouraged in the Lord. So what do we do? Read your Bible, pray every day. (laughs) And you'll grow, grow, grow. Get on the offense. Read your Bible, pray every day, and we wait to see what God's going to do. Let's just stay obedient. Long obedience in the same direction. Lord, we love you. We praise you.